Today on Pilgrim Radio's His People, Nancy Piercy, explaining why there's a toxic war on masculinity. The uh, expectation developed that men would come home from the doggy-dog world of business and industry and commerce. When they came home at night, they were supposed to be reformed and refined and renewed in their biblical commitments, you know, by their loving wives. So, in a sense, you know, as one historian puts it, American culture is letting men off the hook. Nancy Piercy, next. It's become socially acceptable to express open hostility against men. But why? And what does Christianity have to offer as a corrective? In her new book, The Toxic War on Masculinity, How Christianity Reconciles the Sexes, Professor Nancy Piercy takes readers on a fascinating excursion through American history to discover why the script for masculinity turned toxic and how to fix it. Nancy has written nine books, hundreds of articles, and is a professor and scholar in residence at Houston Christian University. Nancy, what were some of the main reasons you wrote The Toxic War on Masculinity? Well, I saw a problem and I saw a solution, <laughs> which is a good balance. Yes. Um, <laughs> the problem I saw was that men are being viciously attacked in the news media today. I was shocked when I read a headline in the Washington Post that was titled, Why Can't We Hate Men? And I thought, really? Hmm. <laughs> in the Washington Post? Or a, a Huffington Post editor wrote that her New Year's resolution was to kill all men mm, wow there, you can buy t-shirts that say so many men so little ammunition and there, there mm. are books even with titles like i hate men and mm. no good men and are men necessary so i thought we've got to get to the bottom of this where oh. is this coming from you know you cannot stand against a social trend unless you really understand where where it came from and how it developed and there were even men jumping on the bandwagon. There's a male author, book author, who wrote a book where he said, talking about healthy masculinity is like talking about healthy cancer. And you may have seen this one because it's come out just recently, so it's actually not even in the book. Um, but it, the news said that uh, the director of Avatar, the movie mm -hmm. Avatar, James Cameron, was quoted saying, testosterone is a toxin. You have to work it out of your system. So this was my problem, you know, that I wanted to solve. Where is this coming from? You know, how how did it develop? Many people think, you know, it's just from maybe second wave feminism in the 1960s. And what I found is it goes much further back. And also, by the way, um, who is exhibit A, so to speak, of toxic masculinity tends to be Christians. Hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. So any anybody who holds to there being some kind of um, male headship or authority in the home is seen as, you know, an abusive, overbearing, tyrannical patriarch. And I was able to find quotes on that very easily, just go online. And there was, for example, there was a Christian publication that said that any, anyone who believes in male headship in the home is going to be abusive. Oh, the, the founder of the Church 2 movement actually said Protestant gender ideology feeds the rape culture that is permeating American Christianity today. So not only is there hostility against men, but I specifically wanted to address 
the attacks on Christian men. And what I found is, if you look at sociological studies, these charges are all completely false. It turns out the uh, so, so sociologists, you know, were listening to these accusations and they said, well, where's your evidence? Where's your evidence? And so they went and did the studies. And so these are fairly recent and, and they're not really out there in the public yet. I had to go digging in the academic sociological journals to find this information. But what they found is that evangelical men who attend church regularly, you know, so they're committed, authentic in their faith, test out as the most loving husbands and the most engaged fathers. And by the way, uh, they do interview the wives separately. So what they're really saying is that the wives uh, report having the highest level of happiness with their husband's expressions of love and affection. Evangelical fathers test out as the most engaged with their children in terms of both shared activities like sports and church youth group, as well as in discipline, like uh, setting limits on screen time or enforcing bedtime. Evangelical couples are the least likely to divorce of any group in America. And then the real stunner is contrary to the accusations, they have the lowest rate of domestic violence of any major group in America. So this is amazing. It's not out there in the public yet. It's not in the churches yet. But the academic studies are showing that Christian men test out extremely well. In fact, to summarize, let me give you a quote. So this was a quote in the New York Times. And it was by, uh, actually, this is my go-to sociologist. Mm -hmm. He's my favorite one. And the reason is that he did the largest study. He's, his name is Brad Wilcox. He's at the University of Virginia. And he wrote an article for the New York Times in which he said, it turns out that the happiest of all wives in America, and by the way, they emphasize the wives, of course, because the assumption is that evangelical men are overbearing patriarchs. The happiest of all wives in America are religious conservatives. Fully 73% of wives who hold conservative gender values and attend religious services regularly with their husbands have high quality marriages. So I was stunned on the one hand that New York Times would print that. Yeah. <laughs> but that's pretty amazing. But I also wrote the book because I thought we need to get this out there. We need to we need to encourage Christian men that they're actually doing very well. And the, the contrary to the media messages that they're getting. And as you to um, to distinguish a little bit, uh, you're talking about the as you said the evangelical, the Bible believing Christian men, church going, several characteristics, and you also in your book the toxic war on masculinity, you differentiate them from nominal Christians that you write, and I guess research would bear this out, exhibit some of the worst and most toxic behaviors of all the domineering. And, and those kind of things, and maybe taking some of the Bible's teaching and kind of turning it to a, a more selfish end. So the evangelical men and the nominal Christians, it sounds like they're all, at least with some uh, researchers, maybe some journalists are all sort of thrown into the same category, but you're saying they're two entirely different groups of people, groups of men. Yes. So when I talk to people about these sociological studies, the, the pushback I always get is, but wait, haven't we all heard that Christians divorce at the same rate as the rest of the society? Mm -hmm. 
In fact, in my research, I found that that is one of the most widely quoted statistics by Christian leaders. And it turns out it's false. But what, what researchers did is they went back to the data and they made that distinction that you just mentioned. They distinguished between Christian men who attend church regularly and are truly genuinely committed from nominal Christians. By the way, my students don't even know what the word nominal means, so I have to explain. <laughs> yeah. It means in name only, because N-O-M is Latin mm. for name. And so these are men who, in a survey like this, might check the Baptist box, mm -hmm. but who, in fact, attend church rarely, if at all. And they do test out shockingly different, as you just noted. Uh, their wives test out as having being the least happy with their husband's way of treating them. They're, they test out as the least engaged fathers. They divorce at the, at the highest rate, in fact, higher than secular couples. And the real shocker is they also test out as the highest in domestic violence, higher than secular men. So you're right. If you put these two groups together, you are going to get skewed statistics. And many studies do, right? They will, they'll put the committed Christian men who do better than secular men, and they take the nominals who are worse than secular men. If you put them together, you are going to get misleading statistics. So this was an incredibly important study where they began to separate out, the, out these two groups. And, and you're right. Um, these are men who hang around the fringes of the Christian church enough to pick up the language of headship and submission but they infuse those terms with secular meanings of entitlement and dominance and control and so on. And I've had a lot of people say, yes, but why are they worse than secular men? Mm -hmm. And apparently it's because uh, they feel like they're getting permission from the church, right? They're using Christian language. They're putting a Christian veneer over it. So in a sense, they feel even more justified than many secular men do in terms of being domineering and controlling. So this is the task that faces the church, that we have to find ways to support men, do a better job, I would say, at supporting men who are doing a good job and encouraging them. You know, they, they too feel, you know, beaten down and attacked. We need to encourage the men who are doing a good job. And then we need to reach out to the men who are sort of at the fringes and help draw them in and to understand a genuinely biblical understanding of masculinity. The book is The Toxic War on Masculinity, How Christianity Reconciles the Sexes. My guest is the author, uh, Professor Nancy Piercy. She uh, teaches at Houston Christian University. Uh, well, Nancy, lest uh, uh, listeners to this think that you're simply maybe defending men in general, and you, you certainly uh, were, were not from what you just said, but you're quite open in your book about having been exposed to the kind of uh, masculinity that is toxic and that is harmful. It's not that that hasn't been part of, part of your personal experience. Yes, I start the book uh, with my own story, and I did grow up in a very abusive home. My father was physically abusive, severely physically abusive. In books on abuse, they sometimes they ask, open hand or closed fist? Mm. It was closed fist. Oh. You know, he was punching us and kicking us. And, um, and I had a psychologist interview me last week, I think. At any rate, he said, I started reading the book and I thought, oh, no, <laughs> it's going to be an angry woman. She, you know, she's been abused and now she hates men. And he said, then I read the book and realized, no, you have really worked through 
deep levels of emotional and spiritual and psychological healing mm -hmm. so that this book ends up actually being very male supportive being very positive towards masculinity and men so I, I I'm glad he sees it that way I I do hope it comes across to everybody that way that is my goal is um you know men don't respond well to being called toxic nobody would right we do a better job if we encourage them in what they're doing right and um, they're made in God's image men do inherently innately know what it means to to be a good man uh, and so it's better to encourage what they're good at um and to Romans 2 right they all know right and wrong mm-hmm yes so that's a better approach well Nancy uh, there are obviously many angles to come at this question uh but where did the idea particularly in recent times did the idea that masculinity is toxic come from those two words toxic masculinity are, uh, seemingly are everywhere and then if you could uh, even in recent days and then how does it connect to perhaps uh, things that happened in the distant past yeah this is one of the things that did surprise me is that the concept not the, always the language not the language of toxic but the concept goes much further back than most people realize you have to go all the way back to the industrial revolution so prior to the Industrial Revolution, men worked side by side with their wives and children right, on a family farm, family industry, family business. And so the ethos for masculinity really focused on caretaking. And you, know, you had to be gentle with your wife and children. Um, you couldn't be autocratic because you had to work with them day in and day out. In fact, uh, the even the concept of authority had a very specific meaning back then. It didn't mean, you know, I'm in charge, I get to do what I want. It, culturally, they, the term authority was used to mean the person who has responsibility for the common good. So whether it's the common good of the marriage or of the family, the school, the church, you know, the village, whatever. The, uh, the purpose of authority was to look out for the common good. In other words, you know, I look out for what's good for me, you look out for what's good for you. But who is responsible for the good of the relationship, for example, in marriage? Or who's responsible for the common good of the whole family? The favorite word back then was disinterested, hmm. by which they meant the person in authority was not supposed to look out for his own interest. He was supposed to look out for the interest of the whole. So there was incredible... Uh, social expectations that men would be not only fathers of their family, but another common phrase then was fathers of the community. They were supposed to bring that caretaking ethos out into the community as well. Mm. How did we lose all this? Yeah. So it was the Industrial Revolution that really gave, um, began, this, began the change. The Industrial Revolution took work out of the home, and of course, men had to follow their work out of the home into factories and offices. And for the first time in American history, men were not working alongside people they loved hmm. and had a moral bond with. Instead, they were working as individuals in competition with other men. And that's when you see people in the literature of the day, you can already see it. They start saying, our men are changing. You know, they're starting to act in the workplace, you know, as the autonomous individual looking up for number one, being aggressive, being egocentric, being acquisitive. Um, selfish ambition was one of their phrases taken from Galatians, for example, mm -hmm. that, that, that men, ha men were losing that caretaking ethos that they had had in the colonial era. 
And also, this was the time when America began to secularize, and that undercut uh, biblical norms for manhood as well. Because after the Industrial Revolution, not only were there factories, but there were, you know, industry and financial institutions, large banks, universities, the state, and so on. They developed this large public public sphere, public realm. And people began to say, well, these large institutions should be run by science, scientific principles. And by that, they meant value-free. They began to say, don't bring your private values into the public realm, which is what we still hear today. So men were out there getting a secular education and working in a secular environment. And so biblical morality was was weakened, having a weakened hold on men's hearts. And again, people began to be very concerned. In the literature of the day, they start to express concern that our men are no longer, you know, committed to a biblical vision. And you know, what was the solution? Well, the solution was if values are, if you can't have values in the public realm, we'll cultivate them in the private realm. And and who's responsible for that? Women are. So the, the uh, expectation developed that men would come home from the dog-eat-dog world of, in, uh, in, of in business and industry and commerce. And when they came home at night, they were supposed to be reformed and refined and renewed in their biblical commitments you know, by their loving wives. So in a sense, you know, as one historian puts it, American culture was letting men off the hook. They were basically accepting that men were going to be more secular, more prone to sin and vice as a result. Hmm. And this, this led to a much more negative view, uh, a negative script for masculinity. You know, in, in my book, A Toxic War and Masculinity, I deal with several more stages. But the turning point really was the Industrial Revolution. That's when you start to see the language describing the masculine character becoming more negative. And what about in, in 1970 on forward? It seems like something happened as well in, in, in those more recent years, and particularly to the point now that in today's culture, masculinity, you write, is even a trigger word. This was a bit surprising to me that this has been the most controversial book I've written. Hmm. And I didn't expect that. Um, I really thought my earlier book, Love Thy Body, would be more controversial because it deals with issues like abortion and homosexuality and transgenderism. So I was not prepared for this. But even in Christian circles, um, for example, a lot of my um, female students identify as feminists. And if I said anything positive about men, they would get triggered as if I were thereby denigrating women. But my male students were also defensive. When I was I said I'm writing a book on masculinity, one of my male students shot back, what masculinity? It's been beaten out of us. <laughs> so, and, and then my students would tell their friends and family about, you know, I'm, I'm, we're going through this manuscript for a new book on masculinity. And invariably, the first question was, whose side is she on? Mm-hmm. You know, with that tone, yeah. like, whose side is she on? As if you had to be, you know, either wholesale for men or wholesale against men. And and so one of the things I did that really helped defuse that, that sort of initial negativism was I put a study, a sociological study, right at the front of the book. And it's a sociologist who found that there's really two scripts for masculinity out there. Um, he's 
he's very well known in this field. And so he speaks all around the world. So he devised this very ingenious experiment where he would ask young men, what does it mean to be a good man? That was his first question. Mm -hmm. What does it mean to be a good man? If you're at a funeral and in the eulogy, somebody says he was a good man. What does that mean? Men all around the world had no trouble answering this, you know, from Australia to, you know, Germany to Brazil. They said, well, that means honor, duty, sacrifice, do the right thing, be a provider, be a protector, be responsible. And the sociologists would say, where'd you learn that? And they'd say, well, it's just in the air we breathe. Mm -hmm. Or in the West, they would say, it's part of our Judeo-Christian heritage. And then he would follow up with a second question. He would say, what does it mean if I say, man up, be a real man? And the young man would say, oh, no, no, that's completely different. And in fact, I'm going to read you their, their answer because I want you to know these are not my words. <laughs> it means be tough, strong, never show weakness, win at all costs, suck it up, be competitive, get rich, get laid. So the point of the sociologist was there are two competing scripts out there. On the one hand, men do know innately what it means to be a good man. You know, that their unique strengths are not given them so they can just get whatever they want. But in order to provide for and protect and, if necessary, even fight for those that they love. And then, on the other hand, they're feeling pressure from the culture to be the real man, quote unquote, which are the traits that we typically think of as toxic. Uh, and certainly they become toxic if they're disconnected from the moral vision and and become, you know, entitlement, dominance, control, and so on. Um, so I would suggest the real debate is not between men and women, but it's within men's own heads between these two competing scripts. And like I said earlier, it gives us a better strategy uh, because then we can, we can be confident that, the, you know, w when we're dealing with men, they do know what the good man is. We just need to draw that out. We need to encourage it, affirm it, support it, and and help them to live according to the good man that they already innately know. Well, Nancy, I, I did want to ask you that uh, in, in terms of this toxic war on masculinity, which is the title of your new book, and this is a huge question, but it's been talked about for a number of years now that men have fallen behind in areas like education and employment, uh, I, I don't know what the specific numbers are, but uh, women uh, far exceed men in college enrollment, professional school enrollment, and, and so forth. Uh, what's happened there? Yes, that, that's one of the things I also put in chapter one, because um, as, as one of my female students put it, she said, we're constantly hearing about the problems women face, like sexual harassment, discrimination, and so on. She said, so we kind of assume men are doing fine. You know, men are not doing fine, and it's time for us to acknowledge that. They are falling behind at all levels of education, like you say, from kindergarten to college. Most universities are now 60-40, 60% female, 40% mm -hmm. male. More women than men graduate from graduate school and from professional schools. Men tend to have higher rates of suicide, drug and alcohol addiction, um, crime, uh, like I said, most people in prison, 90% of people in prison are male. Uh, men are falling behind in, in, in their employment. Uh, unemployment rates among men right now have fallen to depression era levels. 
that was shocking to me. Depression era mm. levels. It doesn't show up in the statistics because they've stopped even looking for work. So the researchers had to dig deeper to find that. And their life expectancy is even going down. Women's has stayed the same. So it's not a general trend. It's only male life expectancy mm. that's gone down. And so I do think it's time for us to start asking, you know, how can we help men? You know, it's great that women have surged ahead in, in places like education. Um, a lot of money has been poured into programs to encourage girls and to write girls supportive curriculum and so on. But I do think now it's about time that we look at boys and men and look at are there programs that we can help, help to help them succeed, help them to catch up, catch up with the girls, which is pretty much how it stands now. And it, unfortunately, the, the first book, I think it was the first book written on this subject was by a philosopher named Christina Hoff Summers. She, it was a book called The War on Boys. Hmm. And she said, the problem is every time we propose a program to help men or boys, feminists oppose it. You know, they stand in the way of it. And they say, no, no, we, you know, you, men still make it to the top. So they don't need any help. And it's true that maybe the top, you know, five to 10% of men are the CEOs and the bank presidents and the Hollywood directors and so on. But on average, men are, are doing worse. And it's time for us to pay attention to that and ask how we can support men better. Well, what would you suggest, Nancy, uh, as our time is quickly uh, getting away from us? Any suggestions? I'm thinking particularly in terms of in, in the Christian context, the Christian church. I mean, this toxic war on masculinity is culture-wide, but certainly obvi it's obviously it's felt in the church. Anything you suggest for the church, for Christian churches? Yes. So the most important long-term solution to toxic behavior in men is the father-son relationship, mm. you know, and everyone left and right now acknowledges it used to be a right issue, but now the left acknowledges too that single families, uh, the children from single families do far worse in every area, and especially boys. Boys do worse than girls in single parent families, and not surprisingly, because girls at least still have their mother in the home as a role model of what it means to be a woman, but boys do not have a day in day out role model of what it hmm. means to be a man. And so I, I quote one psychiatrist, she said, we're not gonna have a better class of men until we have a better class of fathers. And so that does give us some hints on what we need to do as a church. In America, we have 40% single parent homes. Did you realize that 40% of children are growing up without knowing their natural fathers? which is the highest rate in the world. And so I think that um, there's two things that the church can do. Number one, they can have a direct ministry to fatherless boys. I think we need to put that higher up on our list of ministries because father substitutes can have a big impact. I mean, the studies have shown that teachers and coaches and church youth group leaders can, in fact, have a great impact. Uh, but secondly, um, what about men who want to be more involved with their boys? But in surveys, they say the biggest barrier is work, mm. just like it has been ever since the Industrial Revolution. Work takes you out of the home all day. And so you can't write a book on this without having some practical solutions. And I have a, ch a whole chapter on practical ways that people might be able to flex the workplace to have more time at home. Since the pandemic, it's become easier to make the case. One study found that 65% of fathers say they don't want to go back to work full time 
because they've gotten closer to their children. One of my students' uh, husband was an IT professional. So, of course, during the pandemic, he worked from home. And because he was home, he was able to be more involved in the homeschooling. He was able to be more involved with uh, taking the kids to the sports and so on. He decided he would be the one to make lunch. And he picked up so many of the family responsibilities that his wife was able to start a part-time business. So I give lots of anecdotes like that just to help people think you know, creatively. Are there ways that even you know, after the Industrial Revolution, uh, we could maybe flex the work, the work schedule, the work structure, so that so that both parents really could have more time with their children. So I, I hope that that will be inspiring to people. You've been listening to His People on Pilgrim Radio. Many thanks to our guest, Nancy Piercy, professor at Houston Christian University and author of The Toxic War on Masculinity. Coming up on tomorrow's program, it's Dan Sirid reflecting on the Israel-Hamas war and remembering his ultimate hope is in Jesus, the Messiah. Yeah, I look through my own eyes and it's very tempting for me to trust in military powers and in politicians and governments and so on. But no, my trust needs to be in the Lord, needs to be in the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, needs to be in the Messiah of Israel, Yeshua. Jesus. That's tomorrow at the same time right here on His People. Thanks for listening.